little bit of, of where we are in our discussion, um, because we've been talking about what's the purpose, what's what are we here for, right? We we discussed last time not God and what you know everything that God from the God aspect of it, and that necessitated that there's some sort of purpose from our perspective, and uh, we said that there was actually two Jewish responses to this question. Uh, number one, pleasure. What kind of pleasure? The ultimate pleasure, right? Lots of pleasure, not just settling for the simple pleasures. And uh, the other answer that we gave is that we are here because God's kingdom, so to speak, is incomplete when it's just him and him alone. Um, and what we try to do throughout this series is to try to demonstrate how there is a progression, an ascension of different pleasures and what Judaism says about every particular pleasure. So we started off at the bottom, ground floor, physical pleasures. Easily attainable, very easily um, experienced, not so hard to achieve, but also not such lasting pleasure. It kind of goes away. When it, once the charcoal bar uh, is finished, the, can, the pleasure goes away. And we mentioned that all of the Jewish laws and restrictions about pleasure are all centered on this lower-level basement floor pleasures. Why? We said a few reasons. Number one, because there's a danger of someone making those pleasures into an ideal, into a focus. And number two, it's because this pleasure is just a, it's just a, it's a fuel. It's supposed to kickstart you. It's supposed to help you to achieve what, what, what really are the ultimate pleasures. So if someone had just spends their life um, making the physical pleasure as a goal, well, then they're playing tennis their whole life. Like a tennis example. Some, tennis is wonderful, but to play tennis your whole life and to ignore your uh, making a family and having a career and trying to accomplish something, well, that's silly. So there has to be something greater than that. Um, so that's, that, 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 yeah, but that's still important because it's something that could be used toward, to help you towards uh, achieving your, your real goals, which are the higher levels of pleasures. We mentioned that... Um, um, when someone uses the prop uses simple pleasures in the, in the proper context, what they'll find is that what they're really doing is assuaging the body's need for physical pleasure. Body has needs, soul has needs. We'll get to this a little, bit, a little bit deeper. Body has needs, soul has needs. You want to make sure that the body is in concert with the soul, the soul's the soul's goals, soul's goals. Soul has goals. Body has goals as well. You got to make sure the body's happy or else the body is going to schlep the, 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 the soul down and prevent it from achieving what it is it wants to achieve. Body and soul are natural antagonists. There's a constant conflict with the body and soul. So you want to make sure that if you want to accomplish your soul's goals, that the body is, is also taken care of, right? So we swatch the body, we, take, we give it some physical pleasure as well. So that's body pleasure. What we're going to be discussing today is, well, what about soul pleasure? We have body pleasure. Now let's, let's talk about soul pleasure. But in between, in the in the interim, we had last week we talked about happiness and love. And now happiness, it's 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 kind of less of a body pleasure than physical pleasure. Physical pleasure is something it's measurable, it's definable, it's something which is more tangible. It's something you could touch, right? It's something you could feel, right? Happiness is kind of a temperament. You might be able to chemically uh, measure it in some some way or another, right? You might be able to measure the serotonin and the 
release of endorphins that might be somewhat measurable, but it's somewhat it's a little bit more sophisticated. It's kind of, you can't exactly point to one specific reason as to the cause of your happiness. And like we mentioned, the happiness is not caused by any one thing. It's caused by a, by a perspective and an outlook. And if my outlook is one of being positive, of appreciating what I have, if I recognize that I already have more than I could ever achieve, like we demonstrated last week, I, I already have more than I could ever possibly even want to achieve. I wouldn't give up my vision as we all done. We, we did this exercise last week. No one would give up their vision for any amount of money in the world. So I already have every amount of money in the world. If I'm not happy with what I have now, getting something else is that's inconsequential to what I already have. So if you're not happy now, you'll never be happy in the future. And you're, you, your life could be full of challenges. You could be riddled with with with, with um, difficulties, um, with with struggles, and you'll still have you still have more than you could ever achieve. So you still have to be happy now, in your state that you are now. Find what you know, you know how your life has value now, and then you could be happy with it. Because right? if you're not happy now, no matter what you have, no matter what you achieve, you won't be happy then either. But happiness, we'll see, is, is, is somewhat of a, a higher, more sophisticated pleasure than physical pleasure. It's a little bit closer to the soul than it is to the body. It's still somewhat measurable. It's still somewhat tangible. You're still, you know, you can still, I, I, I'm sure there's, way, there's ways to graph it out. You, you can still take chemical um, drug interactions to ha- affect to affect your mood. If someone were to just take a Ritalin every day, they probably will be happy. There is some way to artificially achieve happiness. It's somewhat closer to the body than it is to the soul. Now, love, I don't know if there's any way to do it. I don't know if there's any uh, love potion uh, that would give someone the artificial love with, with, without actually doing the work. I don't think there's a way to do it. Love is a little bit closer to the soul, to the soul pleasure, that it's it's and it's even further further from the body, and that means that it entails more work. Everything that we have to do with our body is much easier than anything to do with our soul. So it's more work and more effort, but a greater payout payout at the end. And this is something that we see in every area of our lives. Things that you work hard to earn have a greater payout. It's, it's something that we all are quite intimately familiar, familiar with. If you work hard to achieve a goal, uh, it's, 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 uh, it's something which is more pleasurable for you. It's something which um, you could take pride in. You, could, you, you, know, you, you look back and you look at when you chronicle your life and your successes, it's something that you uh, cherish greatly. So, um, as we move up the totem pole, we'll see we're getting further away from the body more esoteric pleasures. And today what we're going to discuss is a soul-only pleasure. Soul-only pleasure. I don't think it has any... Um, the body doesn't... doesn't you can't quantify it in body, in body terms. And that's the pleasure of meaning. Pleasure of meaning. Living your life for a cause. Now this is something that physiologically, humans need it. If you're not a human... You're an animal. You're very happy with having your physical needs met. If your physical needs are met, you're a happy camper. If you're not, if they're not met, well, then you're miserable. And that's just the way the animals work. Humans also, we have physical needs. 
We have a body. We have physical needs as well. But there could be someone who has every single one of their physical needs met and they could still be miserable. How could you be miserable if you have all your physical needs met? You have a house and you have the car and you have the job and you have the career and you still jump off the roof. And tell you every day in America, there's someone who has it all. We would call them has it all. Who jumps up? Just last, last week, I think there was a billionaire who I read about in the paper who jumped off the roof tragically in New York City penthouse. You know, it's people that are not sick, that are healthy, people that have all the money in the world, that have the fancy houses, different houses. People can have everything, have all their physical needs met. And somehow they feel that their life is not worth living. It's a decision that people can make. And this underscores this basic human need that people maybe aren't aware of. And that's the need of the soul to have nourishment. We all know that our body has needs, right? You need to eat, you need to sleep, you need to, you need to maybe shower every once in a while, right? Uh, some people do, right? Uh, I saw a story about this guy who, who decided, who never showered. He set the world record for like most years without showering. Anyhow, as, a, as an aside. <laughs> Something like that. What happens? What happens when your body, you know, isn't given what it what it needs? Right? You're right. You need food. You need drink. If you don't have food, you don't have drink. What do you say? What does your body say? Feed me. me. Give me something to drink. I need a house. I need shelter. I need clothing. Your body screams out when its needs aren't met. So one of the fundamental needs um, is touch. Is, is yes, love. I call it love. Physical, uh, things. It's an emotional thing. If you look at the studies that they have done on children in orphanages, their basic needs are met. They're fed, they're, they're warm, they're in an orphanage, but their emotional needs from a very early age aren't met. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It damages them forever. When Eisenhower moved into Germany and he found out all these the orphanages where they were having these... Uh, mechanical babies and all that sort of thing. He ordered the women, he paid the women to come in and hug these children once or twice a day. Mm-hmm. And there are tons of studies about this, that, that people, um, but this is what I would call love and emotional, an emotional pleasure. So it's still somewhat easily attainable. But yeah, absolutely. If someone doesn't have love in their life, well, they're the lacking a basic, basic need. Mm-hmm. And I have a, a, a somewhat of a sophisticated theory about how someone could actually live without love. Because you find if people have so much meaning, then they actually don't need, they obviate their need for love. Um, it's like, as an example, like in, uh, in Golden Meir's biography, she writes about how, how she, she got married, but she, she, just, she, she didn't have any room in her heart for, for love. She was so dedicated to her cause, to Zionism, that she didn't have the ability to have to experience love. It's, well, well, that was her love, but it, it's not love. When we say love about 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 uh, connecting with other people, I can say you said touch or you said hugging or right love. That's a, that's the pleasure of love, which just means connecting with other people in a deep emotional way. That's something because because she had such a large part of her life 
dedicated to a cause, which is meaning, which is a higher level of pleasure, that's one way to obviate the need for love. So yes, everyone needs love, but it's possible if someone, or, or it's likely, if someone is so, quote-unquote, married to a cause, well, they, they won't actually have a need for love. Like, there's a story in the Talmud um, talking about the need to procreate. We know that procreation, pru uruvu, be fruitful, multiply, is the first commandment in the Torah. <coughs> and it's a responsibility in every individual to procreate. To procreate. How much do you have to procreate? How many kids do you have to have? You have to have a boy and a girl. So the Talmud says it's a boy and a girl. Of course, one opinion, other opinions, you have to have at least two children because that's the replacement rate. You're a boy and a girl. At least produce a boy and a girl, or, or maybe just two children of, of either either sort. Boy, 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 girl, girl, either one, or boy, girl. Right? We know the replacement rate is actually a little bit more than two two children per woman. It's actually about two point one because some children don't grow up to, unfortunately, to have their own children. So therefore, if you want to if you want to have a steady um, uh, population, you know, just no, no growth and no reduction in population, you have to have, every woman has to have 2.1 children. So that's what the Talmud says. You have to have 2.1, two children, not 2.1 children, but two, you have to have two children uh, to fulfill your responsibility of procreation. <coughs> what if someone doesn't fulfill their responsibility of procreation? They don't do it. Now, obviously, this is the one thing where someone can't really dictate their... Some people just are, you know, for health reasons or for whatever reasons are incapable of having children. So they're not liable for something that they have no they have no say in the matter. But let's say someone is perfectly able to have children and they say, I don't want to fulfill this mitzvah. So the Talmud has a disagree, there's a very interesting disagreement as to, um, like, how bad is it? According to one opinion, it's like, this is as if they're murdering, right? They're preventing children from coming as if they're murdering. That's one opinion. Very stringent. Other opinion says, as if they're, as if they're reducing from the uh, glory of God. It means they're taking God's glory and they're reducing it, which is also seems very, very stringent, very strict. Comes along Ben Azai. Ben Azai is the third opinion. He says, it's as if they're committing murder. He puts them both together. Put, punches them both together. So terrible. It's as if you're committing murder and as if you're uh, reducing from the glory of God. Problem is, this Ben Azai himself wasn't married. And he himself wasn't procreating. So his students said to him, wait a minute. Some people practice what they preach. Some people don't preach, don't practice. But you're preaching and you're not practicing. How could you possibly be the person who says um, that procreation is so terrible that not only is it as if you're committing murder, it's also as if you're diminishing from the glory of God, you put those two together, those two very stringent on their own, on their own merit, um, reactions to non-procreation. Uh, and you put them together, and you're the one who never got married? So he utters this famous line, What can I do? My heart yearns for Torah. What can I do? My heart yearns for Torah. Which means he's, he said, I'm incapable, I have such a love for Torah, you know, Ben Asaf is one of the greatest of the Tanaim. I have such a love for Torah that I just I'm incapable of 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 of, of having any other part of my of my heart, uh, you know, dedicated to anything else. And what's interesting is that in 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 Jewish law, like 
Maimonides writes, he says that everyone has responsibility to, 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 to do appropriation. Everyone has responsibility. But if you love Torah as much as Ben Azai did, then you have a uh, you have a uh, yeah, you have a jail free card, exactly. So this is another example of someone who's so dedicated to their cause, uh, to a life mission, that um, that they, they're incapable of having love to other people. But I would agree 100% for the 99.999% of us. Yeah, absolutely. It's a basic human need. And like we said, it's a human need. And just like having physical pleasure is a human need, being happy is a human need, having love is a human need, having meaning is as well a human need. Yes. Yeah. So you've got way away from this. Creation mitzvah, if you yearn for Torah, what if one earns to become a U.S. president, the CEO of Fortune 500 Corporation, and goes all out, and for the sake of his career, is incapable of making a meaningful relationship, having a spouse? Yes, so that's an interesting question. Um, so, yeah, because we demonstrated, hey, Zionism is very important, and Zionism is a mitzvah, right? Yeshua writes a shot to live in Israel is a mitzvah, and to establish um, a you know, a, a you know civilization in Israel, that's a mitzvah. Uh, but would that mitzvah be enough for her to, as a result of that, neglect a different mitzvah? That's a diff- that's one question. And what you're saying is someone who just wants to, who has who has an ambition to do something which is not a mitzvah, necessarily. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if you would be allowed to, uh, to uh, reject one mitzvah in order to, you know, in order, in order to not do... The ambition to be CEO of a company is not the soul serving God. That's serving material wants and ego gratification. So it's why I've selected that example. Yeah, but I would say that even Golda Meir, even even someone who's doing something which is wonderful, maybe remember that's um, is is that enough for I, I don't know. It's you have a you have another piece in Talmud. Let me tell you, share another piece in Talmud. How the kind of premium the Torah places on procreation. Um, this is in Shabbos, Tractate Shabbos, 31a. And it's talking about someone who dies. Well, not clear if they die, but it says when, I'll just translate it so you guys make your own interpretation as to when it happens. Because at the time when they uh, bring a person into judgment, they asked him six questions. What are the six questions? Um, did you do business honestly? Were the ethical in business, right? Did you um, have accurate weights and measures or something? Well, that um, that's that would be part of doing business. At, remember the order here. Um, did you set aside set aside time for Torah study? Um, did you study Torah um, like in a sophisticated manner? I don't remember the exact all all of them. Oh, did you did you yearn for salvation? Um, that's five, that's four. And one of them is, did you engage in procreation? Means it seems like it's one of these things are like, hey, they're, they're trying, we're trying to address uh, man's life in six questions. And one of the things that we'll ask is, did they, did they take the steps to make sure that the world continues after they die? Did they engage in procreation? And what's interesting is, is that um, one of the commentaries in the back asked the question, wait a minute, some people for whatever reasons, are incapable of having children. Uh, so he says what it means to engage in procreation, it means not only one's personal children, but that someone try to assist the people around them in either having children or meeting people, 
He says that if someone, if I say, oh, I know this guy, I know this wonderful fellow, I know this lovely girl, maybe they should, maybe I should introduce them. That activity is something where someone is taking steps to ensure that the world will continue. Because those things help people meet each other and hopefully have children. How many people here know people or themselves were introduced to their spouse by someone else? I was. Thank you, right? You don't know anyone that was introduced? For sure. This is a common way that people meet their spouses. And it's a lovely thing that someone could do, even if they're not engaging in directly in procreation. This is, some, this, is a, this is something which they could do to ensure that the world continues. I thought one was teaching Torah so that if someone teaches Torah to someone else's kids, it's sort of the same thing as having their own kids. You're spreading the knowledge that they're using Torah. Oh, that, it says that as well. That, 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 that's... Uh, that's another piece of Talmud that says that if someone teaches someone, uh, someone else's children's Torah, it's as if he bore them, so to speak. But the, the point is, is that, I don't remember how we got to this. We got to this by saying that, um, how do we get the procreation? I have no idea. About having <coughs> love higher than the need. And I was going to ask a question on that. So when you talk about love, there's, it seems like to give love is a soul pleasure. To receive love is sort of a, uh, uh, a body pleasure. The infants and everything need need that. So, if someone like I, I think of a body pleasure as something which is body centric, as as opposed to love, which is more of an emotional. Okay. It's a little bit more detached from the physicality. It's more of an emotional pleasure. It's kind of hard to quantify. It, like I said, it's hard to quantify, and it can't you can't be artificially influenced. Sorry, Vitaly. Apologize. I just, I just trying to ask a question. Each time I saw one, you stop making your statement. So I didn't mean to interrupt. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, I just want to ask about altruism. Altruism. To, ask it last, about it last time. Mm-hmm. to me, it's very intrinsically connected to love, right? As in, if you love somebody, you totally put. You're saying if you tr- if you, you truly love somebody, yeah. you'd probably find them someone nice to marry. Is that what you're saying? If you love somebody so much, if you love that, if you love them so much, and you want only their best, you'd find them a nice guy to marry. That's the joke. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know all your flaws, so why would you want to put that at the at someone that you actually but love? Some, suppose somehow you found in yourself to uh, overcome that barrier and still marry that person, mm-hmm. <laughs> despite all your faults. No, but seriously, if. Uh, don't you derive also certain pleasure from being altruistic? Yeah, absolutely. That that's why that's why people sometimes when they talk about altruism, it's kind of like a you know you know circular logic because you're doing something just for the sake of doing what's right altruistically, but you kind of feel good from that, so it's not altruistic. That's why be, you know it's kind of a you know does the pleasure of doing something altruistically negate the the altruistic nature of that activity? Mm-hmm. There is little pleasure in that until uh, well after it, after your birds will have healed. But additionally, you don't do it much better if somebody is drowning or you jump into the lake. I think this is a perfect segue to what I wanted to talk about. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, and so we're talking about soul pleasure. Body has an agenda. Body has needs. 
Body's agenda is not fulfilled. Body says, give me food. I need to sleep. I'm thirsty. Body screams out. Soul similarly has an agenda, has needs. And if the soul's needs aren't met, the soul will scream out. And you can have someone who has all their physical needs met. From a physical perspective, they just have it all. And they're still not happy. They still feel like their life has no meaning. And unfortunately, it's something which is very common. You know, it, you know, I remember when I was first teaching, when I was first teaching this class uh, about a year ago, I formulated this class. I there was a um, Hollywood director by the name of Tony Scott. Who here remembers Tony Scott? Anybody? Okay, there we go. So this guy, there was he jumped off a bridge. Remember that? He pulled his car up, stopped at the bridge, and jumped off. And then everyone said, oh gosh, he jumped off because he found out that he had terminal brain cancer, which turned out to be false. And this guy had it all. He had the house in Malibu, he had the gorgeous wife, he had the, it seemed like he had success, he had lots of money. He seemed to have it all. And he still made a decision that his life wasn't worth living for. Once again, we see that there's some people that seem to have it all and still come to that conclusion. They jump to that conclusion. Nice. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> and that's and that's and that's it. This this should show us like clearly that there's something more, and we call it a soul. I think um, even people that don't believe in souls, they say that there's some sort of need that humans have for meaning. I want to make a book re- recommendation. I can't recommend this book uh, enough. It's uh, one of the. Uh, it was voted like the top ten books of the past hundred years. So I'm sure y'all have heard of it. Um, Man's Search for Meaning. Man's Search for Meaning. Man's Search for Victor Frankl. This is a guy, a, a, a psychiatrist, one of the big Viennese psychiatrists who was Jewish, obviously, all the psychiatrists were Jewish. And he went through the war and he went through Auschwitz and he went through the terrible pain and suffering that, you know, what that was, what the Jews were experiencing at those times. And he was only there for a year because he was, I think he was only there for a year. But what he developed is a whole ideology, a whole theory of how man can have meaning even in suffering. If you suffer for a cause, it could also be tremendously meaningful. It could also be nourishment for your soul. Even suffering could be meaning. It's, it's used as you know some people that have difficulties and challenges like we all do. There's ways to try to find meaning in that pain and that suffering. So, wonderful, fantastic book. Um... But when we say, okay, man needs to have meaning, it could be fulfilled in one of two ways. Either by great accomplishments, right? By living for a cause, by greatness, or by perfection, by completion of a, of, of, of a, of a, of a project. What well, do this is as follows. If someone lives life for, for a cause, right? That's tremendous meaning, right? And that cause, I have a list here. It could be uh, ending assimilation in Judaism, Finding a cure for cancer, building homeless shelters, combating domestic abuse, promoting communism. You know, hundred years ago, communism was very, very, very popular, especially in the Jewish world. And this was something that people lived for. People dedicated their lives to promoting this way of government. Government. It was huge, and this gave people meaning. Um, but any ism, like it be Zionism, atheism, socialism, any kind of ism, any kind of Life philosophy is something which could be tremendously meaningful for you. 
And what's ironic about it is that even something as like communism, that kind of history has shown that it's baloney, right? We have enough we have enough data to demonstrate that communism is wrong. It's it's not the right way to have a it doesn't it doesn't there's no progress in society. It's not doesn't bring about prosperity. It's wrong. We know that. Still, at its time, it was an ideal that people lived for, and it was able to give them tremendous meaning. You know, I, I last week I don't know if anyone here is aware of this, but there was a, a huge debate, a creation debate. Yeah. You haven't heard about it yeah. in this uh, museum in Kentucky. They have a creation museum, so there's this creationist and this evolutionist, and they're pretty sure that they that they can agree. And they had a huge debate. And it was all over Twitter and all over the news and all over everything. And like millions of people watched it online and everyone was talking about it. And uh, what I find funny about that is that I don't think that creationism, quote unquote, or believing in God or some higher authority or the Torah and evolution, I don't see any room for conflict. I don't see what I don't see why they necessarily are on a collision course. Like, why do, why do you have to be one at the other? Why can't... Why does... Assuming evolution is true, why does that negate God? And assuming God exists, how do we know how God did what he did? It doesn't say in Genesis. Genesis gives us 31 verses about how God, about, about what God did. It doesn't tell us how God did it. <coughs> it's possible that he employed evolution. Why does evolution and faith have to necessarily be mutually exclusive? The whole thing is bizarre to me. But anyhow, on, 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 on Twitter... There were people talking about there was this whole raging debate, and uh, about this about this, and everyone giving their position, right? And everyone saying, "Oh, this is a silly debate." There's, some, there's half the places saying, "Oh, it's so silly because no one's anyone going to change their mind," and other people saying, "Oh, of course the the evolutionists are silly, really, man." Can you, yeah, there was one there was a single celled organism that produced all of us, really, right? A mouse over a few million years turned into an elephant, really. And they're, they're saying, oh, creationists? Oh, it's a book of fairy tales. Everyone's giving their arguments. And I got involved as well. Uh, but the one point that I was trying to make is that assuming atheism is correct, assuming it's all random, so we just we just, just came here. So there's, there's, no, there's nothing that guided us to be what we are. Right. Then, as we talked about earlier, all we are is just random amalgamations of atoms. That's all we are. Life cannot have a purpose if there's no cause for that life. Randomness can have a purpose. We know that. So if so, assuming I'm an atheist, it seems illogical for me to get on a mountaintop and start promoting atheism. Because all I'm doing is promoting irrelevance. If, I'm, if God doesn't exist and I'm an atheist, then what I'm really saying is life has no meaning. So if it has no meaning, why do I, need it? Why do I feel such a need to promote it? Doesn't make sense to promote something where you're promoting something. You're promoting the fact that you're that you're uh, that you're non-existent or, or that you have no value. And if you have no value, then you shouldn't be debating. It's 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 like I said. It's like a glass of water and the atoms in the glass of water fighting with each other. I'm I'm better. You're better. Right? It's silly. It's they're, they're they're not relevant, right? 
atheists get on, on top of rooftops and scream, then scream that we're irrelevant. We're irrelevant. Listen to us. We have no value. We have no meaning. There's no purpose. Listen to us. You're so silly. I can even believe what I believe. <laughs> because if we believe what you believe, then there's no reason to believe anything. Point being is that atheists also have souls. And atheists also have souls, and their souls also need meaning. Their souls also need to be fed, right? Just like, uh, just like bodies, even bad people need to eat food. Even bad people have souls, and their souls need nourishment. They find their nourishment in promoting their ism, which is atheism. And that could provide them with meaning. And they're living a life for a cause. Hashtag atheism. You see that all the time. And that's a cause. That's something they're trying to promote. They're living a life for a goal. And how I, despite the, the irony in that, they're living a life to to promote an ideal, whatever that may be, whatever that is. It's something that they want to that they want to spread their message to the world. They want to affect the world. They want to change the world. They want to have meaning. They need it. We all do. Well, that's the the definition of meaning is to live your life for something. Yeah. To have purpose. And translating it to action. Turns that into action. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And I think it's whenever those things don't line up, that pleasure gets messed up. Like I think mm. that's that's kind of the connecting link between our actions and then the resulting soul pleasure or body pleasure. And if those things are not in line with each other and in sync with each other, then the system breaks down. Mm-hmm. And you'll get one type of pleasure but not the other. And you'll choose wrong actions for wrong reasons. Or you'll do right actions for the wrong motive, with the wrong motive, and then not derive the pleasure you theoretically would derive from those actions because you know your intent was wrong. Who doesn't, who doesn't agree? Yeah, I think that that's, a, that's an excellent job of of, of, of aligning how the pieces uh, fit together. So that's one kind of pleasure, and that's living for a cause. There's another kind of pleasure, which is living for a project. It could be writing a book, building a business. Building a business is something which is very meaningful. Even though you're not really changing the world if you're opening up an ice cream shop on, on in Umble, but it's something which is meaningful for you. You're living your life for a cause, right? You hope to finish it, to write a book. Right? There's challenges you'll have to overcome, and that gives you tremendous meaning. You know, once once you overcome that, um, preparing for a marathon, a triathlon, people that make uh, fitness as a goal in their life, uh, it it could provide meaning because they're living to achieve something to uh, you know for a certain goal. Now, the danger with that is that assuming someone finishes their goal, the difference between living your life for a cause and trying to accomplish uh, something like a project, to finish a project, is that if you finish writing your book or finish building your business, this quote-unquote existential vacuum goes back, you know, resurfaces. Man is a need for meaning, right? Your soul has needs. Assuming your soul's needs were taken care of by this project that you began, you finish the project, the vacuum returns, Right? It's like the people who finish writing the book and suddenly they need to do something. I know a guy in Houston. Um, this guy is a minority state owner in the Houston Astros. He did quite well for himself. He was an oil trader. And at the age of 52, he retired. 
all the money one can ever wish for. And then a year into retirement, he started up a new business. Now, why do you start a business? To make money. Clearly made a decision you don't need enough money. You don't need any more money. But what are you going to do? Sit around doing nothing? You, someone has a need to be involved in something. That's the need for meaning. If you finish doing what you did, okay, it might feel good to live off that pleasure for a couple of months, but you'll not need to kick in again. You know, when we talk about philosophy, the great philanthropists, not, I'm sorry, not, not philosophy, philanthropy, right? Philanthropy, when someone finishes accomplishing their business uh, goals, they move into philanthropy. That's how it works. And then people make the big money, right? The billionaire's pledge, right? And what really happens to them, what they suddenly, all the people that are so wealthy, they have just such a need for charity. They have just a need for it. Or they have such a predisposition to charity. I think that it's wonderful that people do charity. But I also think that if we were to break it down, what's really happening with them, we'll find out is that they have a need to be involved in something as much as they care about the needs of the people they're helping. Because if you're finished with a project, you'll need to move on to another project. (coughs) As opposed to if you're living life for a cause... Right? You can never achieve that cost. Right? It's possible. You'll never, you'll never be the one to uh, end poverty or to end homelessness or uh, to, uh, I don't know, save the whales or uh, save the trees or stop pollution or global warming or anything like that. You th- Those things are not going away. No matter how much effort, for sure, someone as an individual does, I say even collectively, you know. Um, it's, but still, because you're living for a cause, <coughs> excuse me, your life has meaning. Now, let's say someone says, oh, I want to be the communist. I want to be the atheist. Right? If you choose the wrong cause, or a cause that could be disproven, or will be disproven, you have, you're, 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 in, the, you're in the face of tremendous danger. Why is that? Because, Let's say you made a decision to be a communist. Now it turns out that the communism is wrong. We know that when we're in an argument, and there comes a point in an argument where we kind of realize that the other guy's right, we still have a hard time admitting it. Why do you have a hard time admitting it? Because you just invested five minutes of your life presenting one side of the argument. The other guy happens to be right, but... You, you invest the time, you already, it's very hard to say I was wrong. How much more so, how much more difficult is it to admit you're wrong, and not only you're wrong, but your whole life and everything that you were living for, everything that gave your life value was wrong? How painful is that? You know, we have, we have um, an interesting thing about um, Albert Einstein. If you look at Albert Einstein's career, you'll notice that the, that the major achievements that he had, the major breakthroughs he had, were all at the early part of his life. The last 20 years, he didn't really accomplish anything. All of his papers were written by, by 1921, and he died in 1955. You know? And it seems bizarre that someone who was able to accomplish so much, someone was able to accomplish so much, uh, towards the end of his life, he kind of, you know, you know, he kind of faltered a little bit in his, uh, in his accomplishments. So someone once uh, theorized that you know that uh, Einstein was was very late to accept the model of the universe of, a, of an expanding universe. He wrote in a letter, "I find the idea of an expanding universe to be irritating." 
He found it irritating. And later on in his life, he admitted that he was wrong. But for many years, he had a model which was not in concert, which was not, um, which was not, which wasn't accurate. And because he had a hard time admitting he was wrong. And that costed him so much. And, and who knows what, he, what, what kind of uh, achievements in physics he could have accomplished if he admitted that he was wrong. But it's very difficult to admit. You know, we think about someone like Richard Dawkins, who's the face of atheism. Let's say one day he has this epiphany. You know what? It doesn't make any sense, right? It's illogical. It's more plausible, it's more likely that there was some cause to all of this design. It's, you know, and he may, let's say he comes to that intellectual conclusion. Is he going to be, is he going to have the, you know, the temerity to admit he was wrong? Probably not. Because it's very painful to admit you were wrong. It's very hard, very difficult to admit you were wrong. To admit that all your life was a sham. Everything that you lived, everything you purported, everything that you wrote books about, everything, everything that you were famous for was just was just was just was just wrong. Right? So painful. Like, I grew up during the waning days of communist socialism. Yeah. Because it's a lot, it's a lot easier to just live with a mistaken notion than to have to say my whole life was meaningless. Yeah, that's why in the early nineties, when you would see, go and see on TV, news, CNN, whatever, all those meetings of communist or party which survived all those revelations, uh, red, red flags, the bizarre flags. All the slogans, long live this, or long live the other thing, right? So mostly people in the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. would be hard-pressed to find anybody the, under 40, because they moved on. Now they have some other goals. Now they realize, ah, okay, it's not too late. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the vast majority of people, right, the vast majority of people, they get married, they have some kids, they work, they punch a clock, they retire... And they start playing golf, right? They're not Goldie Mayer. Are they not? Are they not achieving those higher goals to fulfill their soul? Or is it sufficient? They, they, they die happy on the, have a heart attack on the golf course, right? Is it sufficient? Bombs, check, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Or is, is it sufficient that, you know... They had a couple of kids. They didn't turn out to be sociopaths, right? Uh, they had a decent marriage, and that's it. Well, can I comment on that? Yeah, sure. Rabbi Lappin wrote this great book called uh, The Ten.
Ten Commandments for making money. Is and uh, one of the things he mentions is that there's no word in Hebrew for retirement because the whole concept is because a, a Jew is supposed to live here to serve others. That is what brings us purpose. That's what we have a goal here. And whenever you engage in commerce, you're serving others. So to just you know save up your your acorns in the shelter, and once you have enough to supply yourself, you stop serving others and just live off what you have. It takes away purpose in life, and it's not what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be engaging in the world. Are you uh, talking about that mean. book, Thou Shalt Prosper? Or yeah. Something that like that? Uh, yeah, maybe. But in my mind, if you were you were a good man or a good person all your life, exactly, you brought up reasonably well. You reasonably well parenting job. You tried to do the right thing all your life. Maybe not necessarily always successful. Maybe it did something, maybe for society at large, maybe a little bit, just just a little bit. So, uh, it's good enough. Not everybody can be Albert Einstein, Vladimir Lenin, of, uh, Adolf Hitler, or somebody. I mean, or shaking. Mm-hmm. But can go, can I also think it. that I have two. I have two responses to your question. Um, I would say number one is that someone who's just going through life just kind of on autopilot. Sometimes they're just they're just busy. You know, they don't actually contemplate what am I living for? They don't, they don't ever actually ask themselves the question. Like, like, what am I living for? What difference does it make if I live or die? That's like this kind of question. If you have time to ask yourself the question, then you might find a void. Uh, but if someone is just, hey, I'm just, I'm just, you're always busy, your schedule's full, and you know, and you're doing reasonably well, like you have some level of meaning because you are trying to accomplish some goals. You have a project at work, you have the kids, you have the, you know, you have the social. So you do have these little micro, uh, micro meanings in your life. Uh, that coupled with the fact that you're constantly busy, you don't have time to dwell on these questions. Uh, then yeah, you might be able to go through life without, you know, without actually having to face any sort of existential questions that uh, we're talking about. I think, I think, yeah, there is a possibility. I, do I think that you, that someone like that would maybe not necessarily have the same level of pleasure? Yeah. I think someone might be forfeiting a little bit of, of, of pleasure. And I think even if someone... Not a bad ringtone. I think... This pleasure, I don't even think it needs to be something spiritual. Like I said, working on a project, building a business, starting to writing a book, all these things are pleasures, but they're not pleasures that are measured in, in you know, the ways that... It's, the pleasure of someone make, writing a book is not about how much money they're going to make. Someone can write a book and, I don't know, sell, you know, 300 copies, and it, it's not really impacting their lives economically. But they have some sort of great satisfaction out of that like because a well, it's, it's a legacy but it's also a goal that you set your mind to and you faced all you know all the struggles that go into you know writing a book and you were successful and you you know you you survived and you thrived and you accomplished you persevered so that's a pleasure that maybe someone who doesn't have set goals won't have well someone who doesn't you know that who you know that's not that's not representative of the vast majority of people but most people don't write books, aren't interested in writing books. Most people don't start businesses. Either they don't have the money 
or the entrepreneur uh, spirit, they work for someone else. They go in, they do their job for eight hours a day, and they leave. I mean, the vast majority of people are not descriptive of the kind of goals. So of they're the not living for any cost. Do you really think so? That people they just... lead lives of quiet desperation. I think is the way one author. Quiet desperation. Well, it's a cliche, quiet desperation. But what just dealing with using what you just said, micro accomplishers. Most people are serial micro accomplishers. Micro accomplishers. Micro micro meanings. I'm gonna get to you in a second. That would also fall under the micro uh, micro meanings, you know, because a lot of times the reaction that I get to this <clears throat> to this whole idea is that oh, I have a wife and kids, and that's and that's true because <clears throat> you ask people what what are they doing this all for? What are they working so hard for? You know, why do they punch the clock like you said in the miserable job with the miserable boss? Why are they doing that? Because they kind of need it because they have a family, and the family is one of those goals, one of those life you know life missions that are so important to us we're willing to forfeit a little bit of, you know you know in other areas of our lives because it's important for us this is what we're kind of living for we're living for this cause but i do think that if someone actually goes through the exercise of saying what am i living for just ask myself those five words well, what am i living for five words five words what am i living for right um they have an opportunity to harness this ability to have meaning and to create just this wealth of 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 of, of pleasure that you know was previously uh, locked out for, uh, from them, and that's what the Torah wants us. The Torah wants us to live. God wants us to live for meaning, to have something that we're living for, to have something something that we're willing to die for. So why wouldn't family be for that? Oh, it would. It would. It would. But I also, I also think. I also think. Say writing of books, you know. Okay, I, I, I agree, I agree, but that, what I'm trying to say is that you have to be mindful of that. Sometimes someone who doesn't even know, who does, is not, not aware about the pleasure that they have, they won't experience it. If someone says, oh my gosh, I'm, li- I'm willing to die for my family, that, and that takes their pleasure of meaning and turns on the engine, right? The mindfulness of the, of the gravity of this pleasure will enable them to actually have the pleasure of meaning and say, this is something I'm living for. This is my life's purpose. I'm willing to die for this. But you also have to remember the For sure. It's going to be dynamic, absolutely. And that's because of the empty nester, empty nester and syndrome. Absolutely, and you really do have more volunteer time. <laughs> I, think, I think the example that he's pointing out, um, sorry, I talked some allergies. Oh, Lord knows, I know. Not always in what we accomplish from the outside, 
the important thing is on living a life of introspection and self-awareness. Because you've got your guy who dies on the golf course could be one of two men. He could be one of those people who lived his whole life just going with the flow of American culture and not being an introspective and self-aware person and searching for meaning and being mindful of the reasons why he's doing the things that he's doing. That guy may die perfectly happy in and of himself, but he lived a three-foot life when he could have lived a six-foot life, you know, like as far as depth of life and experience is concerned. And it's not necessarily our place to pass judgment on the value or worth of that man's three-foot life, but somebody who's choosing to live a six-foot deep life might feel sorry for that guy. On the other hand, you would have a guy who dies on the golf course happy, never appeared to accomplish much, but because he went against that kind of cultural flow and chose to cultivate a life of self-awareness and introspection, um, he went to his job and he was And I, 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 so, so I think we could, we, we, we all agree here that <coughs> even something that someone is engaging with that doesn't seem to be so, you know, lofty can still uh, fall into the category of meaning so long provided as that that person is aware of that. Means if someone just doesn't know why they're doing what they're doing. They can't really uh, have any meaning out of it. But if someone says, I know that I'm doing this for my family or for my community, even though it's a small kind of a spectrum, they're not trying to save the world, which is a, obviously a higher meaning. Uh, but still, even on a smaller uh, you know, on a smaller scale, there could still be value on uh, meaningful value to someone's activities 
provided that they're aware of it. But if someone says, oh, I'm just going through life and I'm not, not even asking myself the question, well, then this, this pleasure is, is, uh, is, is, not, is not one that they could uh, experience uh, just yet. Sure. So, and if you save one person, it is as if you have saved the world. That's correct. Absolutely. That's a statement of the Mishnah. Um, I think that sometimes people, you know, I know people that are irrationally driven to make as much money as they can. And by doing that, they neglect other things in life. And what they're doing essentially is they find meaning in, or they think they find meaning in assembling the largest war chest or largest amount of, you know, Right, and by doing, and that maybe is meaningful for them, or at least it is able to keep them afloat in the meaning category of life. Uh, but we all were all familiar about the stockbrokers in 1929 who committed suicide. Like, there's a huge spike in suicide rate, and there's a graph that shows how the suicide rate kind of flows with the economy. And someone who has someone whose life has true meaning, you want to make sure that those. Things that you're engaged with that give you meaning are stuff which are under your control. You don't want to be at the whim of the market. You don't want your life to be at the whim of the market. You don't want your life's value to be dependent on whether or not you know the market's up or down. You want to make sure that uh, you want to make sure that your life has meaning. Just you know, you, your family, your life, what you're living for. But if it's connected to something else, well, you know then. Stock market goes down, you jump off the roof. Why? Because your life has no more meaning. It's, it's, not, it's no longer worth living for. That's it. My life was just connected to this one goal. This goal went away. My life has no more meaning. And that's a tremendous danger. And I want to share maybe a story. Um, there's a family in Toronto, a very famous Jewish family by the name of the Reichmans. Have you heard of the Reichmans? Enormously, enormously wealthy family. Um, at one point, this uh, the Reichmans, before their fall, had a major fall in the 90s. Uh, but they, they built Canary Wharf in London. So think about that. It's like a huge uh, uh, financial center in, in London. They built it. You know, they, they owned half of Manhattan. Enormous family. Uh, they, they were worth billions and billions of dollars. Enormously wealthy. And uh, one of the... Uh, the father he died, and he left his kids two wills, two wills. And this one you this one you read right after I die. This one you read after the shiva. After after the shiva, you read this one. So they open up the uh, the first one after he dies, and he said very very peculiar request. He said to him, "Listen, I uh, you know I lived a very good life, but uh, I have this one weird desire. And that's I want to be buried with my socks." Socks, yeah, like socks. Yeah. Hosiery. <laughs> he wants to be buried with his socks. The problem is the Jewish law says that when someone gets buried, they're buried with burial shrouds and not any other clothing. But this is uh, Mr. Reichman who's talking. See? He has lots of clout, you know, in the community. And he's the one who supports all the institutions. So what do you do? So his children went to the rabbi and the, to, the, to the leader and he said to him, um, this is a true story, by the way, uh, I said to him, what do we do? This is what's his request. You kind of, you have to honor the request of a dead person, but this is a request which comes in conflict with, with Jewish law. What do we do? The rabbi says, listen, I know that you're, 
father and you guys are big supporters of my institutions. Still, doesn't matter. Law says he bear without socks, he bear without socks, irrespective of what he uh, what he expressly wished for. Fine, so they buried him without socks. And seven days later, they finish the shiva and they open up the other letter and he, and he says to them, you see my kids? When a person dies, you can't even take your socks with you. Even your socks you can't take with you. You can't. You can't. No matter how much money you assembled in your life, nothing comes with you. You're buried like everyone else with your burial shrouds, zehu, and that's it. The only thing you really bring with yourself, with you, is 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 is, is your mitzvahs, is your activities, is what you did for the community. Right? Don't get caught up in the trap of trying to just assemble more and more and more money, right? Uh, to the ex- exclusion of using that, using your lives, using the blessings the Almighty gave you for good. Because, as we say, in the, the Mishnah says, when a person dies. The only thing that comes with him right, is his good actions, is what he is, what he is, you know, his his mitzvahs, his Torah study, what he did for the community, his kindness, how he treated his family. That's what comes with him. Not his money, not his gold, not his silver, not his real estate, not his Ferraris. None of them comes with comes 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 with them. And um, this, I think, is a is germane to our subject because you know sometimes people say, "I'm going to live my life for." You know, for a false false meaning, because money is really a false meaning, right? It could cause someone to jump off the roof when the bad money barter goes down, and it could cause someone to just really live for like, what are you living for? What what are you? You're going to die. We're all going to die sometime, and that thought of us going to die sometime could be very useful for us to try to make our life as as, as meaningful as possible. We know the Rosh Hashanah. There's countless um, during the liturgy of Rosh Hashanah. There's countless. Uh, remembrances or uh, references to our own demise, our own death. And Rosh Hashanah is a day of renewal. It kind of seems out of place that we talk so much about our death. And I once theorized is that Rosh Hashanah is a time for renewal, but it's a time to really ask ourselves these important questions. What am I living for? And the way to find out what I'm living for is to ask myself, what is it going to be when I die? What am I willing to die for? On my deathbed, if you imagine your deathbed, if you think about your tombstone inscription, those thoughts are very, very potent because when they, when you think about your, your death, we you know death is separation of body and soul. When you think about your death, right, the soul is the one who's thinking. Because death, by definition, means your body is put into the ground and it just disintegrates. So your soul has the clarity of thought. The soul is in the driver's seat, the body takes back seat. So therefore, the soul is able, if, if you think about what's going to be when I die, you're able to think from a soul's perspective. The body might want to assemble all the money in the world, but, the, but you know the ones on your deathbed, that has no value. You can't bring that, you can't bring socks with you. You can't bring socks with you. So what, one other way that, I, that uh, I've read in the past to think about that, and it, it closely approximates the issue about the meaning, is to think about if you drop dead right now, what would other people say about you? What would your co-workers say? What would your spouse say? What would your child say? How would they remember you mm-hmm. in this snapshot of time when you died right now? And to think about it from that perspective. I, I, I have two ways to say what you're saying. I say, number one, the way to find out what I should live for is to ask myself what I'm willing to die for, which is basically I'm trying to tap into what my existing 
morals and beliefs and meanings uh, are. So I'm trying to say, you know, what right now am I willing to die for? If I'm willing to die for the community, well, then I should put my focus now. That's what my life goal should be. I should live for that cause that I'm willing to die for. I already have that in, in, in high value. Additionally, I can just imagine myself, my own demise, and then my soul could try to formulate what it wants to take with it. So either way, using your, using your own demise, your own death, is a way to make your life more meaningful. Um, I have a quote here. This is trying to quote here that um, from famous uh, speech that uh, Steve Jobs gave in 2005 in uh, Stanford University. And he says that, like literally, he hit the nail on the head. When I was 17, I'm reading the quote. I read a quote that went something like, "If you live each day as if it's your last, someday you'll most certainly be right." It made an impression on me, and since then, for the past 33 years, I've looked in the mirror every morning and asked myself, if today was were the last day of my life, what would I, would I want to do what I'm about to do today? And whenever the answer has been no for too many days in a row, I know that I need to change something. Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me to make big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. Remembering that you're going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. You are already naked. There's no reason not to follow your heart. So you hit the nail on the head. He says, hey, if you think about what's going to be when you're going to die, you have clarity to know what you should live for. You have clarity to know what is the cause that I'm willing to dedicate my life to. And that's what this, this, this idea opens up an arena of pleasure for us in the media perspective. Because living your life for a cause is, high, is a higher level of pleasure than anything else, than, than love, than obviously happiness, and anything the physical world could afford you. Living your life for a cause, right? asking yourself, what am I willing to die for? Figuring out what it is I'm willing to die for, and then living for that goal, tremendous, tremendous level of pleasure. Now, as we know, as our as our uh, algorithm has 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 proven, the higher levels of pleasure, the harder it is to accomplish that said said pleasure. So, it's a lot easier, for example, to die for a goal than it is to live for a goal. It's a lot easier to make that one decision to jump at the fire to save you know to save the child or to jump into the lake to try you know to give up your life for a cause. It's very easy. That takes about you know five minutes of heroism of martyrdom. But to actually live your life through the trenches of, you know, just day in, day out, week in, week out, to live for a cause, to truly dedicate your life for something, that's very difficult, very hard. You know, it's, but ultimately, like I said, it has the greatest greatest payout. It's the greatest payout. And uh, it's a pleasure that we could, you know, I think it's highly individual. You know, everyone has their own way of uh, their own values and their own you know, priorities. Um, but, you know, you could take those things that you're already doing right now and find a way to reformulate them to be more meaningful. Right? If you're mindful about those little things in life, those nuisances in life, like your little kids, for example, these little nuisances, um, or your job, and try to really crystallize why it is you're doing that, 
it's able to be much more, you know, with the beard. If you have the lawn pitcher, like if you have the just the broad strokes, and I have, four, I have four children, the oldest one of them is five, almost six. I have a lot of chaos in my house, okay, I assure you. But what I, I'm thinking about the big picture, I'm thinking these kids are going to be my legacy or part of my legacy. These kids are going to grow up and they'll, they'll, they'll have wonderful families of their own and they'll give me lots of nachas, as we say, right? And therefore, I'm investing now, I'm going through the difficulties now because I have my eye on the big picture, which is, and that's why it can be meaningful for me. Because I know that these kids are going to be tremendous Torah scholars, wonderful people, have wonderful families, and, you know, be, you know, be assets uh, to bringing the world into a better place. I know that. So that, that makes it something that I'm doing already, makes it more meaningful. And I think our time is up. But uh, there's other examples. But, uh, you know, it's something, yeah. So next week, we're, we're, we're in uh, Yomli mood. The week after, we're going to have, I'm going to introduce you something which is even a higher level of pleasure, the highest level of pleasure possible, possibly attained by humans or by anyone, for that matter. Uh, the ultimate pleasure. What could be more pleasure than living life of meaning? We'll find out in two weeks. And we also have the, we'll have a small little presentation on kosher. And we'll see you all next week. Uh, I'm, my class at Yom Mood is going to be at like 11, I think, or 11.20. And I hope you guys come. I want to have a big class. I'm going to be really good. Help me with my low self-esteem. Okay, everyone have a wonderful week.